0: Welcome to Masterclass U.S. Market with me, Juliana Colangelo. This show has been designed to demystify the U.S. market for Italian wineries through interviews with experts in sales and distribution, social media, communications, and so much more. We will quiz each of our esteemed guests at the end of each episode to solidify the lessons that we've learned. So sharpen your pencils, get out your notebooks, and join us this week to learn more about the U.S. market. Hello, welcome to Masterclass US Wine Market. Today I'm thrilled to welcome Dan Petrosky to the Italian wine podcast. Dan is the winemaker and creator of Massican Wines, a white wine-only brand that is an ode to the Mediterranean and Petrosky's time spent living in Italy and drinking white wine. Dan was named a Food and Wine Drinks Innovator in 2022 and the SF Chronicle Winemaker of the Year in 2018. Dan and I met almost five years ago at Aspen Food and Wine when I was drawn to his his table for my own love of Italian white wine. So I'm super excited for today's conversation and welcome to the show, Dan. It's great to have you here.
1: Thank you, Juliana. Wish I was uh, sitting across the table with you, having a spritz or uh, uh, you know an americano and having this conversation, but uh, it's acceptable to do it on the podcast across the country.
0: Yeah, same here. Instead, we were in a little phone booth here in, in Midtown Manhattan, but you know we can dream. <laughs> Pretend we're We're out on a patio somewhere with the spritz. Well, before we dive into today's topic, we're going to focus on the growth of and production of Italian white varieties in California and in Napa specifically. But first, I want you to tell our listeners about your journey. You have an interesting background going from a successful career in publishing to making wine in Napa. So. Give us the, the short version, but tell us your story.
1: Sure. Um, I am an Italian-American, um, albeit the Polish last name. My mother's side is from the south of Italy, uh, outside of Naples. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and was always fascinated with the um, with travel via the pages of a magazine and and drinking and eating in wonderful places in Europe and the pages of a magazine. My family didn't travel much as a a kid. Uh, So as I kind of grew up and uh, got into the world of uh, work in uh, New York City, I worked in magazine publishing, and I had the opportunity to eat at a lot of fancy restaurants in New York. And through that, I was able to kind of explore the world uh, through wine and through food. And that was uh, something that kind of uh, helped me kind of navigate a, a, a career change, which Brought me to Italy in 2005 and 2006. I spent one year living in Sicily, working on a vineyard, um, and you know, three days a week on a vineyard and doing a lot of travel uh, to the different Italian wine-growing regions. Uh, not only to experience the culture, but the food and the wine. And as I returned to New York City yeah, with you know, with a year abroad and some very minimal <laughs> cultural knowledge and winemaking knowledge, <laughs> I still had my my heart set on being an Italian wine ambassador, or marketing manager, or sales manager for uh, for a distributor, or an importer, or an Italian company who was uh, expanding their production in, in the US. That job did not materialize in New York City in 2006, so I headed out west and landed in California at uh, Dumall for an, a short stint as an intern and um, and then the winemaker at Dumal was a consultant that Larkmead and hired me in the cellar at Larkmead as uh, the cellar master and I went on to become winemaker at Larkmead as, and during that period I started Masica.
0: Amazing. And how did you choose Sicily? I know your you know Italian roots, southern Italian roots, so Maybe that's the obvious answer, but with all the buzz these days around Sicily, tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Oh, for sure. I actually, I was very fortunate. I was there before the buzz. I chose Sicily because of my business school classmate was uh, a Southern Italian, grew up in Calabria, a family moved to Sicily a long time ago, and. When we had finished grad, when we graduated, a group of us went to visit him and his family and his friends in Sicily. We spent a week to ten days traveling around the east coast from uh, you know from Terramina to Catania down to uh, Ragusa and 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 had the opportunity to meet a lot of uh, his family friends who were were in the wine industry. So I had a I had a ten year inflection point at Time Inc. and decided. That if I was going to stay in publishing, uh, was I going to stay at Time Inc. or was I going to move to another job at another company, or was I going to change my life drastically and, and sabbatical to Italy? And my only real relationship um, in viticulture and wine and wine growing was through my friend in business school. So he he made a phone call and got me a you know a year long opportunity, and, and it wasn't really an opportunity that was paid. It was more of a, mm-hmm. you can come live here and hang out with us, do some work on the vineyard. We're not going to pay you, and go through the legal rigamarole. We're just going to right. um, give you the, you know, Italian wine experience. Yeah,
0: pay you in wine. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that sounds like a pretty magical year-long sabbatical. I'm, I'm a little jealous right now, for sure.
1: <laughs> Those were the glory days. when oh, yeah. Even Ty Mink had, a, you know, at 15 years, you you got a six-month uh, sabbatical or a year-long sabbatical, depending on your choice. And that was really done for writers who were trying to kind of refresh themselves and to kind of write their own books. So that was, that was my take on my year living there. I did a lot of writing. I did a lot of blogging at the time. The community saw me as this, this kind of interesting journalist coming from the world of publishing in Sicily, so they were attracted to me and they wanted to tell me stories and that really infatuated me more than I was so with the wine industry and it got me deeper and deeper into uh, this love of brand and storytelling and place and, and opportunity and marketing and all the things that go around you know, the glass of wine and conversation.
0: Amazing. Well, we're gonna to focus today, um, You know, this is Masterclass US Market. So we're gonna focus on Italian varieties um, in California and how you've come to focus uh, on those grapes through Massican, but also just a little bit broader that topic. So the three key takeaways for today's Masterclass uh, are gonna be number one, the history of planting Italian varieties in California and more specifically in Napa. Some of the current trends we're seeing with Italian varieties and grapes produced in California uh, as our second takeaway. And finally, uh, how is climate change impacting varietal trends in California and Napa Valley, not just with Italian varietals, but in general, which we know is a, a topic that you personally are very passionate about. So let's just dive in and you know, starting with your decision to focus on Italian white varieties in Napa back in 2009 when you started the Massacan label. We heard your background, so we know your inspiration from, from Sicily, but how did you come to focus on these wines specifically uh, while living in Napa?
1: Massacan started for two reasons. One was the, the that Mediterranean... White wine lifestyle, uh, where the climate matches the wine you drink, and that was goal number one. Uh, goal number two was uh, white wine because it is an easy cash flow model where you can, you know, make a wine, sell a wine, do it again in a twelve to eighteen month cycle. Where red wine is a little more intensive with time, capital, etc. Goal number three was sticking with this Mediterranean theme. Is there something in the in the way we can look at uh, even? Western varieties like Sauvignon Blanc blended in with a little bit of Tokai Friulano and Ribola Giallo, which is a very Friulian concept as a wine. So I, I really, you know, it was interesting. I just looked at the Grape Crush Report, which was this the guide to all the wine grapes grown and, and produced in the state of California every year. And I found a lot of interesting global varieties, mostly French, you know, Italian, German, um, planted throughout the state of California. And then I focused in on the Napa Valley because that was my hometown. And I was able to kind of al- uh, find a few varieties that I didn't know were here. And then I just started Google searching and, and making phone calls. And, you know, the wine industry is so open to, to helping each other navigate the path of, of, of vineyards and, and winemaking. So I had a lot of friends at the time introduced me to other, some vineyard owners or, or winemakers to learn a little bit about things like Tokai Frielano and Ribola Jala planted in, in Napa Valley.
0: Really interesting. And, you know, what were some of the, first fruit sources that you found through some of the, that exploration and those phone calls?
1: The, the first grape variety was Rebola Gialla, and it was brought uh, to America by George Vare. George Ver was the founder of Luna. Luna was a, one of the uh, emerging Calatau, as they called it at the time, wineries in the mid-'90s. He wanted to make Pinot Grigio and Sangiovese. So George had uh, took his winemaker, John Consgard at the time, uh, and, and his assistant, Abe Schoner, to northeast Italy, where the great Pinot Grigio was grown and the Veneto and Friuli and Alto Adige, and George and John and Abe fell in love with uh, the Friulian um, blends of Tokai and Rebola and Pinot Grigio and Sauvignon Blanc, and he uh, he suitcase cloned um, some some budwood of Robola Jalla from uh, Jasko Gravner in 2000, 1999-2000, and kind of Grafted it onto his Pinot Grigio vineyard in his backyard in Oak Knoll, California. So that was the origin story of, of, of the Rebola, you know, Jala movement in California. But. The most interesting story, Giuliano, was the Nicolini family who came to America in like the early 1900s. And post World War II, one of their uh, cousins or came to the United States and to visit them. And this was around 1945, 1946, post World War II. And the Italian cousin said, "Why do you only have red wine grapes here?" And they had a lot of Zinfandel and Petit Sirah and some Barbera. And they were like, looked at him interestingly, said, "What do you mean?" He said, they, you know, I just served in the war for three or four years, and all." We drank was white wine. And they in nineteen forty six planted a, a white wine grape which is which is today the equivalent, it's called Savignon Verb here in America, but it's the equivalent of toca filano. And uh, those are the grapes that I sourced uh, in two thousand nine to to launch Massacon. So
0: that's pretty interesting. And you'd honestly think with all the Italian heritage there is, you know, in California and in Napa and Sonoma that you actually would see more Italian varieties being grow, grown. I mean, I know you see them in smaller amounts, but you're seeing them more on a mass market. But I suppose, you know, that's also related to to marketing and, and what we see, We you know, Chardonnay, Cabernet are, are the leaders in terms of sales in the U.S. But you would think that you'd actually see more of it, or that would be my guess at least.
1: Well, there's, I think the big thing that happened to the Italian wine grape movement was what happened to what we call the immigrant wine Great movement was you think about the post uh, Gold Rush eighteen fifties eighteen sixties eighteen seventies in California, and you had everyone who was scouting out gold from all over the world were coming to California, and they they landed and settled in in all parts of California, especially the north where you know the gold mining towns were. And so you had Italian immigrants, French immigrants, Spanish, German, uh, and you have names like Schramsberg and Beringer right. <laughs> you know, So we uh, we and Krug, and so you you had all of these immigrants already. Here and then, then prohibition happened. So the world was a different place with the amount of wineries and wine grapes pre prohibition. Prohibition wasn't so much a problem for the immigrant culture of wine growing because everyone was still allowed to produce two barrels of wine at home. That's equivalent to 50 cases, or basically a case of wine a week.
0: Sounds pretty good <laughs>
1: to eat and consume with your meals. Yeah, and that was sacramental as well as, and then fast forward, the problem. You know, post, uh, po- post prohibition, there was a massive diversity of wine grapes still being grown in California, especially in the north and in, in Napa and Sonoma and Mendocino County. And there's a lot of Italian grapes, a lot of French grapes, a lot of German grapes. Mm-hmm. But then World War II happened. And when World War Two finished, it took it took a lot of uh, a, a lot of the heart and soul and, and the bodies of, of not only Americans but French, Germans, Italians, the country. And they come back after that. America becomes this industrial, you know, New Deal country where we build roads and we build factories, we farm, and we learned that we can farm wheat and grains so well that beer became the working class beverage. It wasn't wine anymore. So wheat and grain, you know, in the in the quote unquote flyover states, um, fueled, you know, fueled the, the factory worker and the field worker and the you know the construction worker. So then then things started to narrow. And I saw this working at Larkmead um, pre World War II. We had thirty eight different grape varieties planted on the property. By the time I was in the in in the vineyard, like in in the midst of like the middle of my stint at Larkmead, we had gotten down to like seven or eight so we've narrowed the field down to what was working and so we kicked out a lot of great varieties i am um, proud and happy to say that you know dr harold omo planted sangiovese at larkin in the 1940s as a trial but the first official commercial sangiovese in napa valley was planted in 1982 yeah not long ago the first commercial version of that grape but the uh, the, the big grape that uh, that and it's no surprise why this is a, a, an important Italian grape in California. But the number one red grape in California, as an Italian red grape, is Barbera. And. There's close to 50,000 tons in the state of California. Barbera tends to be a, you know, well-structured grape variety, good fruitful flavors, high acidity, can handle cold, can handle heat, it can handle elevation, it can handle flatlands, and it yields very well. And farmers love, you know, high-yielding crops. So Barbera is still, to this day, the, the number one red grape variety. But put that in relation to Sangiovese, it's 10 times more Barbera in California than Sangiovese. Um, Sangiovese is a little bit more fickle as a grape variety. Um, it doesn't really travel well outside of Tuscany, but um, um, but you, you flip to the white side. I mean, actually, there's more Torello planted in, in, a, <laughs> in California than there is Sangiovese. I mean, you flip to the white side, and I don't know if we can claim this as an Italian. We will because we're an Italian podcast, and this is what Italians would do. But Pinot Grigio or Pinot Gris um, is the large; it's in the top ten grapes grown in the state of California by volume. That's
0: what I would have guessed. Yeah. So
1: there's almost two hundred thousand, almost two hundred thousand
0: tons. Oh, interesting.
1: But but the, the closest second to that is like Malvasia. Yeah. At like three. But at, but at like three thousand tons, so we're talking we're talking something like there's just a big huge gap between you know the the leaders of the pack, the Barberas and the Pinot Grigios of the world, and then everything else that is Italian.
0: Italian wine podcast, part of the Mama Jumbo Shrimp family. Yeah. And I imagine that has a lot to do with marketing too. I mean, Pinot Grigio has a brand name recognition among U.S. drinkers, right? So it makes sense that that would be the most widely planted Italian varietal, uh, you know, in California. So um, that's not, you know, entirely surprising, but you know, it sounds like, you know, for, for you with Massacon, you looked at a number of practical reasons um, with the decision to make white wine and, and the cost, matters there, but also your inspiration around a lifestyle brand of the Mediterranean and and that white wine lifestyle. So, you know, really creating a kind of a sustainable brand with with Massacom with those those reasons. Um, So kind of switching gears a little bit, but to talk more about the sustainability conversation, you know, you personally, I know, are very committed um, to topics, around sustainability and, and climate change in the wine industry. And you've been featured on speaking about the viability of certain varieties in Napa in the future as temperatures rise. And I know you're tracking the temperatures year over year to, to, to see those changes. So with all of this in mind, you know how do you think that'll impact maybe Italian grape varieties grown in California? Do you think we'll see more potentially as it gets warmer or what do you see there?
1: I do hope we see more diversity, but it is, I think you hinted at the, the notion earlier about the economics of it, um, why things are popular and the economic viability of a, of a wine grape and a wine. It is hard for us in a place like Napa Valley, which I call home, to get off the drug called Cabernet. And I, I don't say that in a derogatory way or, or a mean way, I just, that Cabernet Sauvignon and in Napa Valley is such an economically viable business, and it's not a huge business, still Napa Valley wines are still 4% of the wines consumed in America. And when you think about that, it is so small, so finite, that it actually tracks a very luxurious price point and a luxury marketplace. And to kind of think about wines in the world, and my thought process about what would replace Cabernet Sauvignon in Napa Valley You had to think about the marketing first. I know a lot of my peers are planting these obscure, crazy grape varieties that are doing really well in these, really, in these, you know, Winkler scale five indexed, you know, grape growing regions of the world. But like, A, you can't pronounce the grape. B, Name name one wine with that grape that sold for over fifty dollars or a hundred dollars, and so you have to think about the wines of the world that have you know have reached a, when you speak specifically about Napa Valley that have reached an echelon of of hearts and minds and wallets, and those grape varieties exist in in places like Italy and Spain and France, for example. But when Bob Mondavi. Speaking of uh, of Italians, when he created the Napa Valley wine luxury business in 1967, 68, when he was launching his winery, he looked to the only luxury wine in the world at the time, which was Porto. Today, 2022, 2023, Amadevi would see, you know, he would see that you know, Alianico and the grapes, you know, the, the, the classic wines of Massa Baradino. Uh, you know, can command not only uh, viability in a climate-changing world, but also command price points of $75, $100 a bottle. And and looking at other wine-growing regions of the world, he would uh, he would basically say that, you know, Vega Cecilia with Tempranillo and Grange with Shiraz, these are top 10 wines of the world. Not, I mean, modern day, and they command the price point of $500 a bottle. So if you're a Napa Valley Vigneron, quote unquote, and you're thinking about, 20, 30 years from now, what you want to plant. And if you're a connoisseur of great wines, you, you have Vegas Cecilia in your cellar, you have Max Bernardino in your cellar, you have, um, you know, Grange in your cellar. And I think that's how I would think about it if I was, you know, second lifing with a lot of money in the bank in Napa Valley, um, because it does take a lot of money to kind of to get in the foot in the door here because the land is so finite.
0: Of course. But do you think we'll see any of you know the bigger companies that are driving a lot of the wine business in terms of producing some of the most well-known labels that consumers are purchasing off shelves? Do you think we'll ever see them start transitioning away from Cabernet and maybe planting or producing a more commercially viable Alianico, for example?
1: It's, it's interesting. I, I, I hope so. Um, what I've seen in the trends in, in California is in the last 25 years, we've leaned heavily, you know, in the eighties. And the 90s, there were brands that were started that were red wine. That's the Harlins of the world, the Opus Ones of the world, uh, the Screaming Eagles. They designated themselves as red wines, again, going after the Chateau model. California in the last 25 years leaned heavily, and Napa leaned heavily into varietal designation, Cabernet Sauvignon. And then they started leaning heavily into Appalachian designation, Cabernet Sauvignon from Oakville. And then, the, but the greater marketplace moved more towards these things called red blends, right? And there is a huge push towards the red blend, and that was, you know, twenty years ago, and the, the, you know, twenty-five years ago to launch with the prisoner, and and think of all the red blends that are in the marketplace today. What I see come happening tomorrow is. With the next generation of wine drinkers looking for more transparency, is a red blend a viable marketing option in the next twenty, ten or twenty years when people want to know what's actually in the wine? We want to get back to this kind of transparency and and what grape varieties are actually in there now. Probably a bunch of Barbera, you know, in, in in the Prisoner. You know, there's a lot of Zinfandel in there, but there's probably probably a handful of Barbera as well. And and because it adds the freshness and the structure to Zinfandel, so I think that that the transparency movement is going to be a super help for wineries to identify what's working for them as long as they can command a price point that allows their business to continue to be financially viable and right now i don't see another great variety other than pinot grigio or barbera helping the the, the California wine community i don't see a, a nero davila coming in and and taking the world by storm i mean the current nero davolas in sicily don't aren't over 30 40 50 dollars a bottle i mean the etna reds are now Pushing uh, Edna Red Nero Mascalese is now pushing uh, the seventy to a hundred dollar range uh, on on the shelf in, in America, but um, outside of Nebbiolo and Sangiovese, you know, Italian red grapes don't really. Command massive price points in America, so I see it. I see the I see the movement happening, not at the Napa Sonoma level so much, but I see the movement happening at the at the at the B tier of consumption. You know, under thirty dollars a bottle. Um, I could see it. I could see it happening.
0: So California appellated, So things that are blended, but that's interesting. What you brought up about the transparency and the consumer demand for transparency, and maybe we'll see more wines. You know, ingredient labeled. We know, you know Ridge is starting down that path, and. Uh, I expect that more wineries will start following suit of um, of labeling and transparency. So, we'll see some of those varieties getting some awareness from that aspect, not necessarily as single-varietal plantings, but as part of blends um, and being marketed as part of the blend.
1: Oh, 100%. And I, you know, in the early days of Masakan when I started and I realized that it was very difficult to build a brand on a, a grape like Ribola Jala and Tocca Friulano. I was making four hundred cases and uh, I mentioned Abe Shoner earlier as he was at Luna with uh, John Conzer and George Baer, and I was I was kind of bummed out. I'm like, how am I gonna make more Masicon if I if there's not a lot more Tokai and Rebola? And Abe said, <laughs> Abe said to me, and Steve Matthiason was there as well, and he said to me, just take the take the grape varieties off the label. No one needs to know what's in it. <laughs> and 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 it was also I didn't do it at the time, and I also Wanted to because my wines were under the legal limit of alcohol. I was able to write on the, la- on the label uh, "white table wine," but I was afraid of doing that because I wasn't sure the consumer in America was so privy to the knowledge of what that white table wine meant. So I kept the alcohol percent on it. It just so fittingly happened, you know. Fast forward, you go through the pursuit of balance movement where low alcohol became a thing in uh, in a, a small group of restaurants and sommeliers and retailers and consumers, and then now transparency is a thing. So uh, what I did back in 2009 was, you know, things that I didn't necessarily could have benefited me back then if I took uh, ingredients off the label, the grapes off the label. But today it seems uh, more prescient because people want to know more information.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And How are you imagining like the future of Masticon for yourself with, you know, the availability there is in Napa and in California for the the grapes that you're producing from, but also as the brand has grown, you're not 400 cases anymore and and the brand has grown quite significantly. So what do you see as a future for Masticon, keeping in mind the things that are happening in the climate? And in
1: Napa Valley. Um, Great question, and it's what what I think about every day, (laughs) and it's why I'm focusing all my energy on on what I'm doing today. And I've been fortunate. I've gone from 400 cases to 7,000, so I'm up in this you know 80 plus thousand bottle range of my business. I feel that my wines, from a Napa Valley perspective, are valued as fairly as possible um, that I could without the going broke. And um, those are $32 to $35 suggested retail pricing, and you know, but what I've noticed, you know, as we discussed in the in the, what's the biggest you know Italian grape in America? It's Pinot Grigio, and like, and it's it's a market I've never played in, and I think that this is an opportunity for me to to kind of do something that you know m- my mentor George Vare, and. Um, And others have tried to do in the past in the 90s with the Calatel movement is to try to play against, uh, you know, brands like Santa Margarita or lean into the fact that Pinot Grigio is something that is so easy to say, so joyous to say, and tastes delicious at the same time and really kind of is transportational and and branding of like the Italian lifestyle. So I'm going to lean into Pinot Grigio a little bit in the next couple of years. Um, And then, you know, Savignon Blanc is is an anchor to my program. I'm going to lean more into Savignon Blanc and then some of the smaller, unique. I'm working with 11 grape varieties right now. Um, everything from Tocai Ripola to Sauvignon Blanc Chardonnay, uh, Pinot Grigio, Pinot Bianco, M- Malvasia, <laughs> uh, Muscat, Greco, Falangina, Cortese. So I'm, I'm really leaning into them because I do feel that white wine grapes in a climate changing world are also very suitable to what I'm trying to accomplish in my style because I'm searching for the flavors of the grape variety and the acid and sugar balance it has. Whereas that is easy to accomplish in a climate-changing world because you're not dealing with the maturation of the f- texture and the flavor of the skin as you are with a red grape. So you are just thinking about the juice of the grape and and how the climate is, is impacting the decline of acid and the rise of sugar and where that kind of intersection is to create the style of Masakan that I want to create. And I think that's a lot easier because there's really no reason why Tokai Filano or Bollejol are planted in Napa Valley. It's a, this is the farthest place from Friuli. It's you know, Friuli is the coldest, wettest wine-growing region of of Italy, and Napa Valley is is not the hottest and driest, but it's up there in the hottest and driest of wine-growing regions of, of California. So I'm really gonna you know. Look at where the marketplace is, and the marketplace is still still going strong on Pinot Grigio and Savignon Blanc, and um, and I'm going to kind of lean in there, and then focus my my more cons- direct to consumer efforts on these smaller boutique. You know varieties like Tokai and Rebola and 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 Falangina and Greco and and really keep those kind of minim, minimalized in my portfolio to direct to consumer and some kind of restaurant placements, but then really lean into Sauvignon Blanc and, and Pinot Grigio. I think that's my that's my five year plan.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Lean into the more mass market varieties for three tier and wholesale, and go a little more niche consumer direct um, with some of the more esoteric varieties. You mentioned you're making wines from 12 different varieties, um, you know, Sauvignon Blanc, but also a lot of Italian varieties. Do you see any regional focuses happening in California for Italian varieties? You, we just mentioned that you know, you, we see uh, Tokai, Friulano, and Napa, which is, is quite unlike the climate of Friuli, but are we seeing any trends like, okay, we're seeing more Barbera um, in pasta or anything like that? Are you noticing any of that in the market?
1: Uh, I'd have to dig a little deeper into that answer that question accurately. Um, But what I will say is, (laughs) winemakers are an interesting breed. They have this childlike enthusiasm that they can do anything. So when they taste you know uh, uh, a Naredo Mascalese for the first time from an Etna red for the first time they think that they can grow it in like Russian River Valley right like they, so it's just like and then they take a risk and they take a chance and and that type of enthusiasm is wonderful and I applaud it and it's also that type of experimentation is wonderful and I applaud it but you know you you have the Antonori family you know, <laughs> plant 300 acres of uh, 400 acres of vineyard on top of Atlas Peak and a huge portion of that was planted to Sangiovese and and I, I believe that they only they have about three or four acres left of Sangiovese, so they took a lot of chances and risks. And if, and if any family could figure out where things should be grown properly, it would be them. Um, when it comes to you know a grape like Sangiovese, so um, I think it's still a little scatterbrained uh, up and down the state. I mean, a deeper dive into the into the grape crush report would t- would tell me differently. But uh, I, yeah, I don't think that there's a real movement right now. You have a lot of a lot of that kind of Lodi area, kind of north central coast of. Uh, Central Valley of California has a lot of old uh, Italian immigrants who are still, you know, growing a lot of, uh, a lot of this Pinot Grigio.
0: Yeah. And you know, how have you found, we talked about winemakers having this bullish kind of enthusiasm when, when they try something new. Um, I think especially so in California, right. We, you know, in Italy are a little more traditional tied to some more specific laws in the regions around, around what can be planted, not the same kind of wild West freedom we have in California. So I'm curious, um, when you've introduced massican wines to italian winemakers and italians what their reaction has been to your wines
1: it's been so so heartfelt and warming and and I've had the good fortune to I spent most of my time uh visiting and making some wine over the years in friuli and it's really amazing to hear a friulian say oh my god you made tokai <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like I'm like yeah it's kind of cool ain't it no it's been it's been very I've been fortunate over the years to host so many uh, Italian winemakers from Sicily to Tuscany to, to northern Italy and just to share my wines with them and to show the world that this you know I do believe that white wines travel really well and it gives me a little bit of a it allows me the opportunity to, to, to be a little more um, get a little more praise and generosity of uh, spirit from my my peers in Italy but if it was if I was um, not reluctant to make Italian red wines but um, but the white on the white wine side it's it's pretty easy to, to make a beautiful refreshing Mediterranean style white wine in California because we are a pretty beautiful refreshing Mediterranean style climate <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly <laughs> and um, you know the one thing I've noticed is that and uh, the common theme that I hear from my Italian co- counterparts about my wines is that they they tend to have a little bit more of that California sunshine, which includes which means it has a little more of that California fruitfulness, even though my wines clock in at eleven and a half, twelve percent alcohol, and have you know ripping acidity.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but that sunshine really coming through and, and the fruit that's coming through in the wine that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, based on the on the climate too. So. You make all these great white wines, of course, but you're also making beer, vermouth, probably something else that I don't even know about under the Massican label. So tell us a little bit more about those projects.
1: Yeah, the, the, the vermouth was first because I left Italy as a bitter drinker, I never thought uh, I would go to Italy and drink bitters. And I was drinking a lot of Amaro. Um, living in Sicily, I was drinking a lot of a which was, you know, gasoline. When I first tasted it the first time, it was like motor oil and gasoline mixed. It was horrendous.
0: Sounds delicious. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and um, but I I, I gained the palate for it over the course of a year. I gained the palate for uh, you know Campari and soda and, and Americanos and Negronis. And so when I returned to America, I I, I and I was living in California. I started making my own amaro, and I was trying to fashion them based on some of the, my favorite ones from restaurants in Sicily. And there was this one beautiful cinnamon, uh, cinnamon accented uh, amaro that was homemade in the restaurant, and they would give it to you every night after dinner. And uh, I tried to make that so I can share it at my dinner parties. Um, but what I realized, which is true in the marketplace, is that you know the American Drinking culture is not a an after dinner drinking culture, uh, especially at, you know at home. I mean, you live in New York City; it's a little different. You have drinks before dinner, you have dinner, and then you go out for more drinks, and it's usually cocktails and and stuff. But um, but yeah, we're not a we're not a, a, a massive cultural aperitif or digestif or aperitivo and digestivo. We are more you know the cocktail focus. So I converted my. My Amaro love to uh, Vermouth because Vermouth was something, you know, uh, uh, Italian Vermouth is red Vermouth, and French, ver- you know, white Vermouth is French Vermouth. I, I translated my ver- my love of bitter to Vermouth so that I can actually integrate into cocktails, uh, integrate into the Negroni, integrate into a Martini, um, and that was my 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 Italian kind of theme of like saying, okay, well, you can have a Capari soda or a Vermouth and soda. Um, this is, let me do this to, to kind of round out Masakan as a whole. I mean, but it was also very logistical and, and economical at the time. If I have, um, I work with 30% of all the Tokai planted in California for my wines. If I have a barrel that's not good enough to make a final blend, I really can't do anything with it. Like there's not enough other people who are going to buy a reductive Barrel of wine that may not be the style in which you're trying to create. So I had to kind of, you know, I can get rid of some of those flaws in that fermentary process by aromatizing and fortifying and sweet, sweetening the wine. And that's how my vermouth program truly started in 2010 and 2011. And, um, it took me a number of years to refine it, all the way up until 2018. And then I started thinking about the aromatic category and, and how much it meant to me as a, as a brand. And so vermouth is an aromatized wine. Masakan Anya, for example, would get put into the aromatic white wine category on a wine list. A Belgian whipped beer is an aromatized wheat beer. So I, I met with, uh, a, I randomly at a bar one night in Charleston, South Carolina, a new brewer, uh, Edward Westbrook, um, and he was working with the Evil Twin partnership and making beer there. And so we tasted beers together and we decided it would be fun to make a beer. So we used, you know, my Vermouth barrels, we used my wine barrels, we used the same components of of florals and spices and and, and um, uh, aromas and flavors that I used in my vermouth for the wheat beer, and we made a wheat beer. And, and so it kind of allowed me to get into the aromatic category. And my next step was gin, but that, that fell apart during the pandemic because gin is just an aromatized spirit. So I wanted to own, as a brand, I wanted to own things that smelled good. <laughs> um, and um,
0: Oh, amazing.
1: Yeah, so the next steps for, for me uh, is actually, it's a, a collaboration project with my wife, who is a perfumer. So we're going to release a Masa perfume um, later this year.
0: Very cool. And how about the gin? Are you going to revisit that project or that's on the back burner?
1: I would love to revisit the gin. I do think that uh, I want to get through the growth stage of Masacon first and then
0: yeah that makes sense and then
1: worry about the lo- the legalities and logistics and uh, the permitting of, of starting a spirits brand
0: that makes a lot of sense yeah but um i mean knowing your your business school brand it sounds like too you've set yourself up because obviously we've seen tremendous growth in the cocktail and spirit space so you know potentially to to grow that vermouth as well and and take advantage there but i hope americans get more on board with the bitter culture it's one of my favorite things to drink as well and i think we, we've made great strides i remember being in a bar in greenpoint like 10 years ago and i asked for negroni and i taught the bartender how to make it but she had the ingredients and today i think you know you can walk into nearly any any bar and get a decent negroni more or less at least uh you
1: know, at least on the coast. <laughs> no, God, God bless the Campari people, um, Grupo Camparo, Campari for for bringing the Negroni culture to cocktails, and and you for educating that bartender. <laughs> um, that person probably won't remember that session, but uh, yeah. <laughs> but has probably made more Negroni since then than. They could imagine.
0: I'm sure, especially in a neighborhood like Greenpoint. Well, Danny, we're coming up on time. I could keep talking forever about Negroni's and history of Italian grapes in California and everything we spoke about today, but we'll do our rapid fire quiz that we do at the end of every episode where we really just want to focus in on some of the key takeaways and and things that we learned about in today's episode. So do your best to answer these questions in, in one sentence or less. Um, first question, when were the first Italian varieties planted in California?
1: Post-Gold um, Rush, Northern California, Barbera, uh, with the Italian-Swiss colony in the 1880s.
0: Number two, what Italian wine varieties are most planted today in California?
1: If you accept Pinot Grigio as uh, an Italian <laughs> variety and not Pinot Grigio as <laughs> a French variety, it would be Pinot Grigio uh, followed by Barbera.
0: Great. And number three, and this is a little more open-ended, but still try to keep your your response brief. Uh, what is the future for Italian varieties in
1: California? The continued acceptance of Pinot Grigio and Barbera in, in, in <laughs> yeah. California and the, and the American wine-consuming culture.
0: All right. I love it. I mean, I think with all the Italian-Americans in the U.S., Pinot Grigio has got some, some good opportunity, especially speaking um, as a fellow uh, tri-state Italian-American. We know uh, we, a lot of our family loves Pinot Grigio so I think there's a bright future for it. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us today uh, on the podcast. Really appreciate you being here for sharing all your stories and your personal history, the growth of Masakan. It's a super exciting time for the brand and can't wait to see what comes next for you. Uh, how can our listeners connect with you?
1: Through my website, you can email me. Um, I answer every email. I'm the only person that works at Masakan. Uh, but Dan <laughs> at Masakan.com, through our social media, we are we are represented on most every app. Uh, we spend most of our time on Instagram. But uh, but yeah, through social media, through the web.
0: Great. All right. Well, thank you again, Dan. Thanks for being here today.
1: I appreciate it. Thank you, Giuliana. I look forward to seeing you soon.
0: Thank you for joining me today. Stay tuned each week for new episodes of Masterclass US Wine Market with me, Juliana Colangelo. And remember, if you enjoyed today's show, hit the like and follow buttons wherever you get your podcasts.